Peace, peace, and welcome to episode 52 of Cook on Monday Morning. At Cook on Monday Morning, we are building lives that make us excited about Monday morning. We believe that if we can own Monday morning, we can own the week. If we can own the week, we can own the year. And if we change our year, we can change our lives. Uh, before we launch into today's episode, I wanted to say something quickly about the air quality issues we've been facing recently. Uh, I decided to leave town for a few days when the sky turned orange and it looked like it was on fire. I wanted to encourage everyone in the area to take every precaution available to them. Uh, and even consider leaving town for a few days if it's something you're able to do until the ash settles. We only get one set of lungs and the levels of toxins in the air are at historic levels. As I say that, I understand our first responders don't have that option. Several people lost their lives. Uh, the Cook family is with you, offering our prayers and support. Uh, I'd love to hear your story and how you're coping with the air quality. Please, please send me an email uh, at info at steveoncook.com. Uh, so without further ado, I hope you enjoy today's podcast with Harvard behavioral scientist Todd Rogers. I first met my next guest on Twitter which is where all the greatest connections happen. <laughs> um, I was reading a book called Victory Lab, and I had to uh, be sure to get that guy on the show, the guy who wrote that book. And they talked about this young former Williams College athlete that went into politics and was trying to figure out how to influence outcomes in elections. That person's name was Ty Rogers. And I was like, oh, I know Williams College. Who's Ty Rogers? I went on Twitter. And here he is. <laughs> Come to find out, he had moved on from that, which we'll get into. And he was working on a very important issue that I care a lot about. But today, we'll get into his story, uh, his work, and um, you know how he's dealing with quarantine and whatnot. Welcome, Todd Rogers. I appreciate you. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. So, where'd you grow up? I grew up outside of Philadelphia, uh, in in Montgomery County. What's, and what's Montgomery County like? It's a suburb that is, for anybody from Philly, it's down, it's out on the R5. I, uh, I live now in a city in, in Cambridge, and that is not anything, this is not anything like where I grew up. Where I grew up, it was like a more, more yard than house, and uh, I knew all my neighbors. Mm. And I, I still, I still stay in touch with, even today, talk with my, my next door neighbor who I've known since I was five. Mm -hmm. That's what's up. That's what's up. I mentioned that book, uh, Victory Lab. Have you, have you actually read it? Do you know the book? <laughs> uh, I, I do know the book. I have, I, there's a chapter or two that I think that I am featured in and I tried to read it. And at one point I saw that it described me as having, like, I literally, I stopped reading after this because it was sort of painful as having an athletic, being athletic, an athletic build, but ill-fitting clothes. <laughs> and I, 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 I actually, I, I uh, subsequently in the last few years dated a woman who, um, who told me that she watched a video of me giving a talk and couldn't finish it because my suit was so misshapen. Mm. Uh, she said that my clothes were so ill-fitting that it was distracting and she couldn't finish it. 
I think this is like a theme that I have not read. I didn't, literally didn't even cross my mind that like suits were supposed to, that they got whatever, that they're supposed to be like somehow adjusted after you buy them. Um, but so, so yes, that's why I've not read <laughs> the entirety of the Victory Lab. And I'm mostly, but, but now I try to make sure that, uh, that I have clothes that fit. When I brought up the book, I think initially we kind of brushed past it. We never really got into it that much. And there were so many other things to talk about that I actually didn't know. I was like, because because I've never been featured in the book. So that would like stroke my ego a little bit. Like, oh, I'm in the book. <laughs> but you're kind of like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I know it. And then we kind of vibe. But now I get it. Now I get why we never dove into it. <laughs> the book came out of a New York Times magazine story that Sasha Isenberg, the author of it, wrote about me and the work that we were doing at the Analyst Institute of Politics. Uh, and it was a really delicate balance because I was not allowed by my board and advised against collaborating or coordinating or like communicating with the author. Because if it looks like you're trying to self-promote on the left, and I assume on the right too, but I was working with uh, liberal campaigns, if it looks like you're going to self-promote, nobody really trusts you anymore. And so I had, I had to, yes, my ego was, was being flattered by his interest, but I had to try to really hard, despite my ego, be arm's length and avoided of the whole thing so that the, my partners, organizational partners, wouldn't feel like I was out trying to hustle for myself. And so it was like, yeah, so really it was like a fun and totally intriguing game uh, <clears throat> where it, was, it would be good. I was told by somebody that the ideal sentence for the New York Times Magazine piece would be, Todd Rogers did not cooperate with this story. Uh, mm. And so like we wanted to, like, so we wanted to shape it, but we weren't allowed to cooperate. And that sentence ended up in there. So that's okay. And, and, uh, mm. and if, if I cooperated, they would have said that my clothes really fit. And then that, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we spent our time so, so far talking about clothes not fitting in the book you're in. Not really, but the, the book was as much about, and I wanted to, um, I know your, your current work now is really incredible and I want to get into it, but um, this idea of like behavioral science, am I phrasing that right? Yeah. Okay. I, um, what is behavioral I mean, science? I get, I'm happy to go back to how, how I got into this and why the Analyst Institute uh, also happens. Let's do it. Behavioral science is uh is the science of why people behave and do behave the way they do and decide what they do. Um, and what we've learned is a bunch of strategies for helping people make better choices. Uh, and it's an interesting question, what does it mean better? Uh, but the easiest answer to that is helping people follow through on what they intend to do. There's a lot of intentions that don't get followed through on and intentions are usually virtuous. And then, we instead of going to the gym, we watch more TV. Instead of eating broccoli, we eat more chocolate, which you and I were joking about. But yeah. I'm kind of here to sort of yeah. fuel as this goes on. Um, and and instead of volunteering, we also watch more TV. So so a lot of behavioral science is about helping people follow through on their intentions. Yeah, and, and and what if they have impulsive intentions that are self-destructive? Is it also about yeah. interrupting those intentions? Or go ahead. I, I, the way I think about it is that very few people intend for some of the self-destruct intentions are sort of more by what I'm talking about intention. I'm talking about more forward looking 
like tomorrow, what do I aspire? What do I, what would I hope to be doing? Mm-hmm. And those are, um, those tend to be more virtuous and more uh, delayed gratification focused mm-hmm. than the things we do end up doing. Uh, but I, yeah, I, I, my head is in the weeds on this stuff right now because I teach a class um, at the Harvard Kennedy School on the science of behavior change. And so I've spent the last couple of weeks really focused on redoing the class so that it's 100% virtual mm-hmm. and remote. And uh, I was about to go off on one of the classes, which I'm not, I, I will save you and the audience mm. from hearing you know, <laughs> class day five about commitment devices. I've, I've read a lot of books on behavior change and, and habit formation. It's a popular topic with people that especially want to be more productive. There's like a lot of books on this topic. Would you say a lot of that work is, I know your work is more practical, right? It's like in the moment, like, like how would you do sort of distinguish those write-ups from your ongoing work? A lot of the popular press work, I, I don't know which books you're thinking of, like Nudge. My, my, my favorite that. is Stick With It. So I'm not familiar with that one, but, but a lot of it is, is, um, is trying to uh, integrate and make sense of uh, research that's been going on for decades on behavior change. Uh, I think the most important thing for the way that we think about it and people like me is not just uh, what, how do we understand why people make the choices they do, but how can we create the conditions for influencing other people's choices in ways that are welfare enhancing. Um, I think like the, the real broad arc of this is that Danny Kahneman and Amos Tversky are two Israelis who found in the field of behavioral economics in the um, in the seventies, and it was behavioral economics is the economic branch of these behavioral sciences. And what they found was that people make these systematic errors. But over the next thirty years, people tried to develop interventions to to eliminate these biases and errors that people make in decision making, and mostly they were fruitless. That this is just how the human mind is hardwired. We have these tendencies. Uh, And so then in 2008, there's a book called Nudge that Cass Sunstein and Richard Thaler wrote. And Cass Sunstein is a colleague of mine at Harvard, and uh, Thaler is a professor at the University of Chicago. And Thaler won the Nobel Prize in Economics last year for a lot of this work. And their, their conclusion, their argument was, instead of trying to change people, let's try and create the conditions what they call choice architecture. Let's try and architecture, like design the environment to nudge people in the direction of things that are good for them. Mm. Um, and, it's, and it really spurred the kind of work we all do, which is how do we use this to help people make better choices, whether it's show up to school, vote, exercise, save money, avoid temptation. Um, you know, be like, be more inclusive. I'm trying to think of some of the outcome measures that we use to uh, change their policy preferences so that they are more future oriented. But so that that's the sort of the arc of it. That's really interesting work, and it's really, it sounds like a very powerful tool if it if it can be like executed effectively. And I know with the 
the work you do now with chronic absenteeism, like you have um, results related to some of those strategies that we can kind of talk about. But are the I'm just curious, are the people that once people find these strategies and research them, right, are they then applying them to their own lives? Are these people like all billionaires with six pack abs because they've like convinced themselves to <laughs> follow all of the behavior choices that lead to the most optimum outcomes? Like what's, what's, what's going on with them personally? Uh, billionaire and six pack abs, you know, th- those, those are, those are different goals. Uh, you uh-huh. know, if your goal, if your goal is to be as ripped as possible uh, or make as much money as possible, those are different goals. Uh, but I think these tools, they're self-management which is like, how do we control and make sure that we are being productive and doing the best we can? Uh, and then the tools that I work on are how do we uh, develop interventions and environments to help people make better choices? And so that is about influencing others, not about improving the quality of my, of my crunches mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> and squats. Right. Uh, and yeah, I'm not going to... I'm not going to prove it, but I do not have six pack. Uh, but I feel like I'm. I feel like I'm doing, I'm doing fine. I mean, for for someone like me, that's a policymaker, right? With an education system that has these long-standing outcomes that are like racialized, like around achievement, around health, around education attainment, around um, absenteeism, right? Like all of that is like that's that's the work we want to do. We want to be able to put young people in a position to, or communities in the, we'll put them in a better place, which part of the place is conditions they can't control. And part of the place is conditions that they can. And let's talk about, let's talk about absenteeism. And then we kind of move into like some of the other, like health and other things. Like what, what does your current work look like with chronic absenteeism? I think it, it, it makes the most sense to, to start with sort of a, 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 a the longer arc, which is the in, in voting, as you were alluding to, I, uh, I used to be a Democratic pollster, and uh, I realized it was the science of behavior change that wasn't used in politics. And, uh, and so I actually went back, I, I, was a, I applied to 127 Democratic polling firms in 2001, uh, there was a, there's a magazine called Campaigns and Elections, and I got a hold of it, and it has a list of all polling firms. And I, using this new technology that I felt really masterful at, I emailed them all, my resume. I, uh, I got two interviews and one job offer out of 127, and that job took me to central Massachusetts, which is not the center of the world for politics. Mm. Uh, and so... I, I start, and when I started learning about behavior change science, I started going back to Williams College, where you and I both went, uh, and meeting with a professor, a psychology professor that, uh, that I had taken a class with and learning about it. So I would go in the morning, I would drive an hour and have breakfast with them once a week, and I'd go to work. And then I realized I wanted to go get a, uh, I wanted to go learn more. And I wanted to get a master's. Because I, I want to do it for, I didn't want to do research. I wanted to be a practitioner. I wanted to like apply it. And the more I learned, so I, I realized the field was social psychology. That was what I wanted to learn about. I ended up learning that you can get, that master's degrees are really expensive, but that if you enter a PhD program, uh, the master's is free 
and then you can drop out and have a free masters. <laughs> and so I, so I, for real, I ended up, I ended up uh, applying to get a PhD because I thought I would drop out and get a free masters. Mm. Uh, and then this is the danger of it, you know. How, decades later, I'm still doing research. I got socialized into doing research, so I stuck, I stuck around, and I, and I ended up, um, and then I, I left early to start this analyst institute in Washington D.C. where we translated this into, into voter mobilization. So the most effective way to get people to vote um, is to send them, uh, is, to, is, to, is to do some version of social pressure, where, which is not um, where you send, by far the most effective strategy ever discovered is mailing people a list of their vote history, their neighbors and their vote histories. So your 10 neighbors and their vote history uh, and sending it to their neighbors and saying, if you vote, if you will send an update after the election, so everyone will know who voted and who did not. Uh, it's like 10 times more effective than anything else anyone has ever discovered. Having everyone's neighbors know who voted and who did not. It's public record if you vote. I'm not even vouching for the ethics of this kind of privacy disclosure. Um, but it turns out that it's super powerful uh, and in the upcoming election, it's almost certainly going to be widely used uh, by organizations like Americans for American Values and America and America Only. Like, just like some super PAC that's completely anonymous because of Citizens United, there's nobody identifies where the money's coming from. Um, other strategies, like if I ask you, do you intend to vote? You say yes. 50% of the time, you won't follow through. But if I prompt you to make a plan, if I say, oh, great, what time will you vote? How will you get there? Where will you be coming from? Voting takes a plan. It more than doubles the impact per contact. So I can just make uh, get out and the vote is twice as effective when we when we add a plan. Mm. Um, that was my part of my dissertation, and it's now universally used on the left and right. Mm. Uh, and and I wanted to do more of that, helping campaigns like increase turnout. And so we developed. So I, I ran this. I started this research institute called the Analyst Institute. In 2012, it sort of contracted with Obama's campaign and ran the experiments team there and basically runs in the infrastructure of the left behavioral science and randomized experiments. Mm. Um, I now realize I took a massive detour from where you were going. I'm sorry. Nah, I kind of want to dig into it some more. I think it's good. Oh, I think okay. it's good because, the, because I mean, when we first spoke, I really wanted to talk about elections. <laughs> and then we ended up talking about education policy. I was like, nah, I want to talk about elections. <laughs> and, uh, and so um, I actually, because as, as you laid it was out. Because of my, it was because of my self-consciousness about the clothes. That was literally why I was avoiding talking about that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, being in the business of, you know, of election outcomes, like elections was something that what, what Victory Lab put on the on the table was all of the posturing, like emotion driven, you know, old school political tactics, like, oh, message, money. Like it wasn't, it's like, I want to say it was irrelevant, but like it wasn't as effective as the types of tools that uh he was laying out and you were a part of that whole entree of different you know uh experiments that have proven to be effective and it opens talking about the story of michael bennett who who i had on the podcast i had michael bennett on the podcast and and um 
I don't think he knew the book either. Or he like he didn't really talk about it. He was like, Yeah. Like when when I first met him, I was like, Oh, you know, I, I heard about you in this book. He's like, What book? Like what? Um, but yeah, he was like appointed and then so I guess whoever did it for him, they did it, but he wasn't like as into it, but he went by a, sl- a slim margin, right? But when we went into the 2016 election, everyone believed that like Hillary probably talked about this ad nauseum because, <laughs> you know, Kamala Harris at the time that we recorded this, was just picked yesterday as the VP, we're going into, you know, we're going into the November election. Was this used in 2016? Were you around? Do you know? Without getting yourself in trouble, what can you disclose? Yeah, uh, I, what I can say, <laughs> in about 2012, I decided I don't want to do any politics stuff anymore. Uh, and so that's when I left I, and the Analyst Institute and went back to academia and became a, a professor uh, and shifted entirely to education research. But I'm still on the board of the Analyst But why though? Why did you leave? Why did you leave politics? I understand why one would, yeah. but what's your story? <laughs> yeah, I so so a little bit of di- a little bit disillusioned, uh, a little bit feeling like I had already taken a run at my best ideas, and I felt like I I, I wasn't being creative anymore. Like I didn't have any any more to give, uh, and a little bit more like, oh, and then a third is that like there are other problems that are unambiguously good to solve. Uh, and politics, uh, you know, is one step removed from actually helping people. Uh, and so I like the three of them combined to be like, you know, I, I, uh, I wanted, I, so I, I thought that I, I wanted to shift. I actually thought about whether it'd be pl- possible to even repurpose the organization mm-hmm. to do other stuff. Mm-hmm. And then I realized like I, it, it, I wasn't in full control. I wasn't in control. Uh, there's a board, but also you know, it had an important function. It still has a really important function. And I, I love hearing what they're up to. Uh, but I had to go do something else. And, and I love it. Like I go back and like, I, 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 like I said, I teach at the school government and I, I'd say, I don't know, one in 10 students has worked with the Analyst Institute in some capacity. They've been trained by it. They've worked at organizations that have done experiments to improve election outcomes. And the idea is, so, so, that's cool and gratifying, but I want to work on something else. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it was all, it, it was especially, yeah, I just felt like I wasn't like, I wasn't being creative. Like I, like I know some people who can stay in a space and work on a problem continuously for a career. And I just, I just can't do that. Like I, uh, and, and it's not obviously productive to jump around every 10 years uh, because just as you start, well, just as you have a network and just as you're starting to, you know, have some kind of influence to then want to start over. But I kind of like that. I kind of like, I, so, so I shifted to, so I shifted back to academia and I, I started doing research in education, trying to develop interventions like the voting stuff, but for helping kids. Let me, let me do a little like clearing up for my own sake about the structure of the, and the, the names of it. So the Analyst Institute, is this a 501c3 or private it's a pray. It's a. We'll call it a uh, an LLC. I'm not sure what the legal structure is. It's not a nonprofit um, because it 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 works on partisan and nonpartisan things, and so it okay. contracts with people. Okay, so it's a uh, so it's a uh, the legal entity. It's a it's a private entity that has a board. 
and its business. It makes money through the contracts and, and using the strategies for whoever is hiring it. So you start the Analyst Institute. It sounds like it's connected to Harvard, or is it not? No, not at all. It's a completely yeah. separate entity. It's, I mean, it, yeah, frankly, it was incubated by the AFL-CIO. Okay. Um, and, and the political director of the AFL-CIO is the chair of the board and really mm-hmm. sort of the, the soul of it. Okay. Is, okay. Uh, but, but what, what I will, you, you've been in politics intensely too. And like, it's so fascinating that like I was in all these meetings where it was obvious that all these people were trying to, to, to knife me mm-hmm. uh, because I'm like, I'm talking to consultants and I have, and I'm saying that what they're saying is not true. Mm-hmm. And I haven't been in the field. I haven't been doing this. I like, who the hell am I? The only thing I have is all progress since the enlightenment. Uh, like that's the only thing I have is like, we've done experiments. We've done better research than they have. They have intuition and I've done experiments and then what they're saying is not true. And they're, they're like, they're saying they're agreeing with me and I don't really understand the game that everyone's playing, but it's clear that like, they're going to knife me at some point in the meeting because we're meeting with, a, with a, you know, so it was really, I mean, it was fun, especially when I knew I wasn't going to stay to just like enjoy that. Like these are, these are masters in the street fight. And I, and by street fight, these are not real, like, these are people who are fighting to build another addition to their, their, their like second home in Nantucket, the, you know, the like mm-hmm. leaders in the consulting class. Uh, and I'm like, I'm saying that what they're doing is pointless. Not all of them. Not, it's not like, not the whole class, not the whole field, but some of them. And it was just sort of a, a fun game to know that I was right, even if I didn't know I was going to win. Yeah. I'm thinking about my own experience and how true that is. And, I, and like, you know, too much of the consultants have, I think, way too much persuasion over the process that isn't um, really like results driven, but they're so convincing. It's kind of like human behavior, right? It's like whatever your nudges are, like they can nudge the, the fuck out of a candidate. <laughs> you know, you can get inside somebody's head, like they understand how people work, how to play on the securities. Um, and I think it's about the W. In the, even in the fight, like actually, I don't know all that's going on behind why they downplay, why they push, but you know, it's definitely about winning. And um, and I, what one of the things though that I, that I like about them is they may not be right, but they they give it at least in my experience. A lot of them are kind of like giving it to you how they see it. You know, uh-huh. like, I'd rather the direct over the beating around the bush. But then, you know, everyone has like personalities and they're sensitive. But, you know, that's that's kind of a departure from <laughs> the validity of the research. I think like if 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 I were going to launch to another political process, right, having this institute just giving me the proof, you know, because when I look at election outcomes for all, most people don't know who are in these positions. Right. And um, and so I think there's like a gold mine in terms of what this work offers, uh, if the candidate can just like really utilize it. One of the reasons I was asking about the structure though was because it really resonated with me when we were talking about going into other problems that were worth solving because that's where I feel like I'm at in my career. I'm like, this is, like, I have this energy to, to improve things, but this political stuff is kind of whack, you know? And there are all these other things that aren't changing no matter who's in office, which is kind of like where your absenteeism work is. Oh, so. nice segue. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I, so I ended up, 
I ended back in academia really wanting to focus on education stuff, uh, trying to figure out where, what problem to focus on. And as you know, there's so many problems to potentially focus on. And what, what I end up zeroing in on is trying to help parents help kids get to school, trying to reduce absenteeism uh, for a bunch of reasons. Uh, it's not just an indicator of problem of the, that, that there's a problem going on. Uh, it's actually like showing up to school as a cause, not showing up as a cause of not thriving in school. Uh, and, and like getting, helping get kids to go to school is unambiguously a good thing. It's, it's the, the distribution of kids who don't, who, who have high absenteeism is inequitable. There's all the achievement gaps that are associated with it. Um, and I thought maybe I could, you know, using these tools, literally like directly just translating, get out the vote tools and methods, which are these randomized controlled trials could develop some interventions. But, but one thing that, that, that did happen in politics, and this is what that book, The Victory Lab, sort of starts to describe from, from I mean, certainly this is what Sasha Isenberg was focused on, was there's a huge, there's a, like a central um, network of progressive consultants. And when we would learn something that works, it would just be it would quickly adopted everywhere. And so if, if you showed me a get out the vote script that you're going to use in the coming election, uh, I, I bet I could predict four elements that are going to be in it. Even you, you're out in San Francisco, and these are elements based on an experiment I did in Pennsylvania or someone else did in Michigan. And so I, I assume that like good ideas that are proven will just scale, mm. and then, and then that mistaken faith met U.S. educational system, <laughs> and I realized like it just turns out that. It's, it's not, good ideas don't just scale themselves mm -hmm. in, in education. Uh, and so the, an example that the, the, the most successful intervention we developed in, in K-12 for reducing absenteeism is inspired by these home energy reports that I don't, I don't know if I ever asked you, did you get those that the compare your energy use to your neighbor's energy use in bars? Saying yeah, I get those. I don't really like getting my energy bill. I had to call them. They overcharged me. But go ahead. <laughs> so, so, so it turns out that big psychological principle, we tend to conform to the behavior of others, right? When, when we think we're doing something worse than others, we move in the direction of where other people are. Uh, and there's this, this paper in 2007 showing that when you tell people they use more energy than their neighbors, they reduce their energy use pretty sizably. And two friends of mine, uh, Alex Lasky and, Dan Yates were, were starting a clean energy company and they read that paper and, uh, and they decided to focus on them. This company was O-Power, uh, which sends these reports um, to, you know, one in five U.S. households and now they're in 15 countries. And, uh, these were, and, and, I've, and I did some research with them and we found that they were sending these monthly reports saying you use more energy than your neighbors. Just a really simple bar graph. Your neighbors use this, you use this, use more than everybody else. Uh, that it increased, it reduced energy use, the equivalent of increasing the price of energy by 25%. Hmm. Uh, and it's by far the most effective way to reduce energy use ever discovered besides technology change. Uh, and so they were super successful and it was really, and it worked over time, it endured, the effects endured. 
So I thought maybe we could try this for education and for attendance. And we did a bunch of research with parents and parents don't realize that they, that they underestimate their own kids' absences by 50%. They, they think their kid attends school more than everybody else when their kid's actually in the bottom half of attenders. And so we send these like monthly reports saying, attendance is really important. How can we help? You may not realize your kids miss more than their classmates and so on. Uh, and it has and proven to be like crazy effective, like easily on the order of like 50 times more cost effective than the next best known intervention to reduce absenteeism. And it's, it's just snail mail, uh, but, but really like data informed with lots of optimizations. So it started with that simple one. Now there's like 10,000 versions of it that we tweak. And, um, and I started, so I, I tried to do it as a nonprofit, uh, helping districts. And then some of our, our donors were said that because it generates revenue for districts to increase attendance. So in San Francisco, I think it's like 50 bucks a day or something, 60 bucks a day. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you know what the number well, is? In terms uh, of the, how much? The average average daily attendance. Uh, yeah, per day. I'll have to look it up. I don't know. If, yeah. It's like 50 bucks plus or minus. Um, and so we can increase attendance at a cost of like five bucks per, per net day generated. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we started uh, like a, a, a company that was not the structure that I would have imagined it being. But once we converted to being a company, we just hired amazing leaders and brought in a bunch of investment. And, and this year we delivered millions of these reports. It's called Everyday Labs. And what's cool is they just keep doing experiments. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so lots of A-B testing. And it's about almost 50% more effective by March before COVID um, than it was a year ago. Like it just keeps getting more effective. And because you just keep, we keep having these control groups, uh, and so the, the biggest public example, so we, we've been working at LA Unified for several years, district-wide, uh, work with like dozens, of, a, 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 a large fraction of the largest districts in the country. Um, and, and it's just, and, and it disproportionately is helping the most vulnerable kids uh, and families in reducing this chronic absenteeism, which is a measure of how much they miss. The, the, the point of that is, uh, as I pivoted to this education stuff, I started discovering some things that work. We've now replicated it a ton. And I was, I was like interested in how do we scale it to help more kids and families. And then all of a sudden I stumbled into starting a company to do it instead of starting a nonprofit. Um, and because it can be self-sustaining and we can get this incredible talent and so there's a, there's a woman in San Francisco who runs it called Emily Baylor. Uh, and it's just been, it's, it's, it's like really opened my eyes to how to scale social innovations. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it was the issue that connected us. I wanted to talk to you about politics, but chronic absenteeism, you know, as we talked about privately, I was like harping on every month at every meeting and no one really knew like everyone had talked about at central office, what they were doing, talked to the school site that wasn't connecting. And the people, the people at, it's, it's basically like a, the runaround I was getting or the picture that was being painted was the next best known intervention. Like these are the different interventions we have in terms of personnel and how it's driving this issue. But as a, as a site priority, you know, I mean, sites, they're, they're so overwhelmed. They're looking at the kids in front of them and how they can get them, 
however, wherever they're trying to take them, you know, to a better future. And uh, so hearing about this was really uh, encouraging for me. And uh, seeing the seeing the research and all the partners that you had had was like a lot of validators for at least our me and our district to to sort of like start to engage around it. Um, and but other problems, right? Because if if we're talking about the same types of issues, I mean, we have a ton of problems around health, right? I mean, what 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 are what if any are the other areas of concern you're looking to apply these strategies to? Or are you still continuing on chronic absenteeism? So there's the, there's a narrow and a broad interpretation of that. The narrow interpretation, I, I will um, absentee showing up is 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 one problem. Then there's all the things that are going on in the world, and like now in particular, but even before this, like there's just I I I don't want to I I worry that this this phrase trivializes it, but it's all one problem. Like it's all it's all these problems are like woven together, and when we act like we're going to solve it in one domain uh, without dealing with the structural problem, like the, the, the broader structural forces that are at like the systemic and the institutional and then like the, the, the political that like it, 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 it quickly spirals into feeling like, I don't know what to do or how to help. So I go for super micro problems mm-hmm. that I know I can help this problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and one that I am really interested in, well, I'll just tell you, on schools, I, I'm very concerned about, uh, I, I don't want to, this, we're in the middle, for those, we're in the middle of basically every school district. If they haven't already, at some point, we'll be remote in the fall. And uh, I, I just, <laughs> the, the, the ways it is going to, exacerbate inequity is just inconceivable uh and we just um i yeah we'll, look that'll be another another conversation we can we can get into but, but one very simple thing we can solve contact information is terrible if anybody here is involved in education like we need badly to make sure that we can contact and communicate with families and when we do we need to make sure that we're building trusting uh relationships that that respect that families are the experts on their, on their kids, uh, and view them as partners. Uh, a lot of the, a lot of districts now, I, I don't know your district or, or the schools that you were closest with, uh, but a lot of districts, the only communication they have with families is punitive and not, uh, what would I would what a mentor of mine, Karen Mapp would describe as asset-based, like viewing families as partners and as like the, the most valuable asset in the sort of team that's going to help kids thrive. Uh, so contact information, it turns out, is absolutely terrible. There's like a huge chunk of families that can't that the districts can't contact. Uh, and ironically, mailing address is sometimes the best way to contact these families because they keep the U.S. Postal Service up to date on the national change of address. So like we can find that we can mail a ton of families and reach them, even homeless families, uh, but we can't get text cell phone numbers because they haven't kept, they haven't had any good reason to keep the school district updated. Uh, that's fixable. I, I wish districts would do that. The thing that we're working on now in my lab and I um, is how to help build social connection between kids uh, and how to induce a feeling of connection and belonging. Uh, and we were working on this for the last three years before kids were like truly 
isolated and alienated from even their social settings and schools. Uh, so trying to develop strategies where we can help kids build connections as an end in itself, like for mental health and well-being, but it also uh, can serve broader like educational goals. So we're, imagine San Francisco, you guys are going to be remote in the fall. How, do, how if it would seem to me, and this is what I'm doing with my class and all the districts that I'm working with, like it would seem to me that the first order concern is making sure kids feel connected to each other and connected to the classroom because that's going to drive whether they show up, whether they enjoy it, whether it's like eating broccoli or eating cake, right? Like, so that social connection is an end in itself for mental health, but it's also instrumentally in the service of getting kids to want to show up and enjoy it. Um, so, so we're trying to develop strategies to like build and facilitate the skills to connect. So we've done all these interventions where we try to, we pair kids and we have them talk about, we, we vary what we have them talk about and we see how connected they feel to each other. You know, you may have seen like the New York Times five years ago had this mm. most popular story about how to fall in love in 20 questions. Uh, I don't know if you saw that, but it was like, it was it basically, it was nah, I heard I heard the 50 Cent song, 21 questions, but. Go yeah, ahead. not the same thing. <laughs> not the same thing. <laughs> not the same thing. Uh, yeah, no, not, not, not even close. But the, <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> but, but it basically like, like, it turns out that having discussion, like that you can have structured discussions dyadically, like in pairs that make people feel really connected, even if they're really short. And I, so that's the kind of stuff that we're working on now because I think it just has all these implications well beyond like, do we get kids to show up? But do, are they engaged? Do they learn? Mm -hmm. uh, do they find, do, like, and do they, how's it help their mental health and whatever else? The point of that is, yes, I continue doing this stuff in education. And um, uh, right now, I just, I, like, there's so many, it, it, it feels like there's so many, like, problems that there's low-hanging fruit for that I would like. Uh, I'm going to continue to sort of dive in. But that said, absenteeism is one that we've made real progress on. And um, it's exciting to see so many districts using it. Yeah, it would be interesting to reconnect about what your findings around that connectedness. I'm deeply concerned about the short and long-term ramifications of what continued virtual learning is going to do, especially on, for, for the Black community. And uh, I mean, our chronic absenteeism was 40% before COVID, right? Yeah. <laughs> And and um, and so, which was deeply compromising learning outcomes, and now we have connectivity, digital like you know like digital literacy, um, and just kind of being confined for kids in general. When I think about the future problems I want to solve, when seeing it, for me, it's really like about the black community. It's kind of like unapologetically like, oh, okay, I want to see uh, my people move forward. And to think that there are tools to, you know, emphasize better outcomes. Uh, that's that <clears throat> I consider that the next sort of phase of my career. Like I'm, I'm no longer, I'm, I'm not looking to do any more political stuff in the near future. But, um, but those problems are really interesting, and so we should keep talking about that. Wait, wait, help me, help me with that. What do you, what do you mean? You mean being uh, like a bridge to help bring. Uh, effective solutions to the people who can implement them. Nah, well, I, I don't really know the mechanism. I want to see this. I want to see the things happen, right? And so, 
there is some just basic like financial security I need to obtain. But when I see my future and any sort of social impact, it's essentially that. It's like, you know, the the rate of uh the rate that like COVID was a great example. Like how is it that COVID has a higher contraction rate in the black community? Or um how is it that, you know, black women are being or contracting like STDs and STIs at a higher rate. Like all, all of these sort of like, uh, what, why is it that we continue to see uh, single family homes or, or low unemployment? Like there, there's just a number of uh, common themes we see generationally that really bother me. I'm like, why is it, uh, even as a district, right? It's like, we know we getting, we getting these kids every year. The achievement gap is not new. <laughs> like we can't front end what we're expecting to better address, like to, to support the families we're getting. We know that they, they, they go to school in food deserts. Like it's just like a bunch of stuff we know is coming that we haven't been able to um, alleviate in a way that feels meaningful. So when they, when they show me the, the differences in math and math outcomes year by year, for example, right? Like math proficiency. And I can do this around a time, like pick an issue you know, incarceration, pick an issue, you know, the rate for math proficiency in SFUSD last year for black students was 13%. This year was 14%. And they're telling me that's a, that's a slight improvement. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, you for real? You gonna be like, oh, how many black kids left the district? <laughs> you know, like what, how did they like, you know, don't do don't do that to me. Don't do that. So, uh, yeah, so if, if there's a way to have a social impact that is based on male, right, and it can just be activated, absent a district facilitating it, and uh, we can see improvements for people, like that's, all that is really intrigue, intriguing. So moving, what the issue I want to settle on ha- isn't so clear, but being in the social impact space, working on that is, is what I really want to get into. We're at the top of the hour. I have a few final questions. Rapid fire. You ready? Let's go. Okay. Do you meditate? Rarely. Do you have a motto? I, I spent late last night, I was working on a, a mission statement for the next 10 years because uh, I'm, I'm ready for a new one and I, was, I couldn't sleep and I, I'm ready, but I, I, not, not one right now. Okay. What personal weakness can you forgive in someone? I, you know, if I did have a motto, here, here's what it is. This is, okay. what, uh, this is what my fiance uh, and I sort of bonded over. Uh, I, it's hard to be a person. Uh, and I, I think that, that, that I, I remind myself of that whenever anyone acts like a jerk or does something I don't understand, mm-hmm. that like everyone's trying their best, but like it, it's hard to be a person. Is that also connected to personal weakness? I think when people are... are uh, seem like they're being mean or disrespectful to me i i think i i try to i i think i i I try to be not petty and realize that like they're doing it because there's a lot of shit going on all the time what's one book you would recommend i reread siddhartha pretty pretty regularly by herman hess okay that's the that's a book that i read the most last and final question Who's going to win the presidential election? Kamala Harris. 
<laughs> Thank you, Mr. Ty Rogers. This is Cook on Monday Morning. This is the behavioral scientist, the political savant. Oh, no, if you said that right. <laughs> the addresser of problems in our public schools. The good brother. I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. This is really fun. Thank you for listening to another episode of Cook on Monday Morning. At Cook on Monday Morning, we are building lives that make us excited about Monday morning. We believe that if we can own Monday morning, we can own the week. If we can own the week, we can own the year. And if we change our year, we can change our lives. I'd like to thank Todd Rogers for sharing his story and passion with us. I'm super intrigued by what he's been able to accomplish with this research and the power for good it can have in our community. I hope you learned as much as I did. I'd like to thank our listeners and those of you that continue to subscribe to Cook on Monday Morning on YouTube. We are now over 300 subscribers on YouTube. Uh, I'm grateful to all of you uh, for that support. Thank you. If you enjoyed the discussion, please share the podcast with a friend. Help us grow this community of doers. Please also take a minute to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already on YouTube or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, it would be awesome if you uh, did a rating and review of the podcast. If you're interested in starting a podcast, I wrote an article. It's called How to Start a Podcast During a Pandemic. It goes over all the equipment I use. Uh, It has some great book recommendations. Uh, So you will find that article in the description box below. Cook on Monday Morning is a product of the Luther Harris Holding Company. It is a boutique consulting practice that focuses on building strategic partnerships between businesses and government, recruiting diversity talent to leadership roles, and helping companies drive impact in the places where they do business. If you are interested in learning more about that, send me an email, info at steveoncook.com. Again, I'd like to thank our listeners and the people that made this podcast possible. Uh, Our videographer, David Topete, and our copy editor, Fernando Encico Marquez. I get up every Monday morning with the intention to create value and showcase love to the people that keep our cities moving. They are our teachers, school lunch workers, custodians, social workers, firefighters, police officers, EMT workers garbage collectors, bus drivers, and nurses. They are our employers, the folks creating jobs and keeping our economy moving. They are our gig workers, stocking our shelves, driving our shares, delivering our food to all of you. This podcast is for you. You live in places like San Francisco, Oakland, Richmond, Antioch, San Mateo, Los Angeles, Dallas, Houston, New Orleans, Baton Rouge, Miami, Orlando, the Carolinas, Virginia Beach, Milwaukee, Kansas City, Cleveland, Detroit, Harlem, Brooklyn. Shout out to our our listeners also in Nigeria, Ghana, Jamaica, Kenya, and Ethiopia. To all of you, this podcast is for you. This message is touching the world and will continue to because of you. Until we meet again. Peace, peace, and we out.